have you been ever unjustly accused? Have you ever been unjustly accused? Has that ever happened to you? It happened to me. It happened to me when I was a young teenager. I was in the Myrtle Beach area. I was at Spring Maid Pier. There was a store attached to Spring Maid Pier. I was there with another boy about my age. And I don't know if it was how we looked. I don't know if it was how we were acting. But when I got ready to walk out of the store, one of the people who worked at the store grabbed me and accused me of shoplifting. And understand, I had not shoplifted anything. I had not even thought about shoplifting anything. I was innocent. And I got to tell you, that moment has stuck with me. I have never forgotten that moment. It embarrassed me. It made me mad. I vowed that I would never go back to Spring Made Pier. And, and I believe that I've held true to that vow. I don't think I've ever gone back to Spring Made Pier. Being unjustly accused was that bad for me. William Blackstone, who was a judge and a jurist in England, coined a phrase that became known as Blackstone's Ratio. And this is what he said. He said, it is better that ten guilty persons escape than for one innocent person to suffer. It's better for ten guilty people to go free than for one innocent person to suffer. And I think most of you would probably agree with that statement. It's better for someone who is guilty to be set free than for someone who is innocent to rot in jail or to be put to death or to suffer for a crime they didn't commit. The problem is when it comes to our relationship with God and our standing before God, there are none of us who are innocent. The Bible makes it clear that all of us are guilty. When it comes to human justice and judgment, you may be innocent. But when it comes to God's justice and God's judgment, the Bible makes it clear that every one of us are guilty in his sight. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, the entire world is guilty before God. The entire world, every single one of us. I am guilty before God. You are guilty before God. Mother Teresa is guilty before God. Billy Graham is guilty before God. Your sweet, godly grandmother is guilty before God. Your mama and daddy are guilty before God. We're all guilty before God. There's none of us who are righteous. There are none of us who are innocent. We're all guilty. And that's what we're going to be talking about for, for the next five weeks as we look at the first three chapters of the book of Romans. These first three chapters deal with our guilt. And these chapters let us know that regardless of who we are, we can be righteous, we can be unrighteous, we can be re religious, we can be irreligious, we can consider ourselves good, we can consider ourselves bad, we can say we're moral, we can say we're immoral or amoral, but the fact of the matter is we're all guilty before God, each and every one of us. But in this five-week period, what we're doing is we're starting a 10-month journey through the entire book of Romans. And so for the next 10 months, apart from a, a couple of detours, we're going to be walking 
through the book of Romans. And so let me kind of give you a, a little background of, of what this book looks like. In the first three chapters, we deal with our guilt. We're all guilty before God. In the next chapters, chapters 5 and 6, we deal with the gift of God, how God gives us a gift, a gift of eternal life. That word gift is found over and over in those two chapters. And we're going to spend the, the, the month of December, the Christmas month, focusing on the greatest gift that has ever been given. And then as we begin the new year, we're going to look through chapters 6 through 8, and we're going to discover how God makes everything new. And that's what chapters 6 through 8 are all about. It lets us know how the indwelling Holy Spirit working in us and working through us makes us into brand new people. We're not the same. The old has died. Everything has become new. In chapters 9 through 11, we're going to look at some truths, some biblical truths, two truths that are intention, two truths that are very important, that are equally important. We need to know both of these truths. We need to understand each of these truths if we're going to have peace in life and we're going to have passion in life. And yet what oftentimes happens is we get kind of derailed and we let one of these truths guide and direct our life without having both of them. So we're going to look at these two truths in tension. And then finally, as we wrap it up in chapters 12 through 16, we're going to look at what the transformed life looks like. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. But what does that look like? And we're going to look at how the Spirit living in us transforms the way we live with our family. It transforms the way we live in the country that we're a part of. It transforms every single part of our life. But as we get started, I want you to know that the book of Romans is probably the most influential book that has ever been written. God has used this book to transform the lives of millions of people. I want you to go back over a thousand years ago to a man named Augustine. Every one of us have heard of the place St. Augustine in Florida. Some of you like to, to vacation there, to visit there. It's a beautiful city on, on the east coast of Florida. St. Augustine was named after Augustine, Augustine. Augustine was a young man who was living an immoral life. He was doing all kind of things, evil, wicked things, and he was miserable. He was unhappy. You need to understand that the sins of this world can make you happy for a season, a period of life, but they will eventually leave you looking for something else. They always will. They always do. And that was Augustine. And one day he found himself in a garden weeping because his life was so miserable. And he heard this voice inside his head saying, read the book of Romans. And this man who was living for the world found a Bible, read the book of Romans, he was saved and his life was forever changed. Or what about Roman or Martin Luther? Martin Luther was a Roman monk who was trying to find happiness and joy and peace and righteousness by following all of the rituals of the church. And yet he was miserable. He had not found what he was looking for. And one day he began to read through the book of Romans and he got to chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, The just shall live by faith. 
and we are told that God touched his heart. He was dramatically saved, and the rest is history. We call it the Reformation. God used Martin Luther and, and his encounter with God in the book of Romans to, to change the history of the church. Or John Wesley. John Wesley wrote in his journal, I'm going to Georgia to convert the Indians, but who will convert me? Here he was. He, he, he was getting ready to go as a missionary to America to convert the Indians. But he knew that something was missing in his life. That's how some of you are today. You teach a class, you, you sing in the choir, you help with children's ministry, you do all kind of things. But deep down inside, you know something's not right. You know something's missing. And so John Wesley was at this chapel service at Aldersgate, and someone was reading the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, and this is what John Wesley said. He said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and he saved me from the law of sin and death. And then God used John Wesley to usher America into the greatest revival America has ever experienced. John Calvin said this. He said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open for him to the understanding of the whole Scripture. In other words, if we can understand the book of Romans, we can understand the entirety of what Scripture says. F.F. Bruce, who is one of the greatest conservative Bible theologians of the 20th century, said this. He said, time and again, throughout the course of Christian history, Romans has liberated the minds of men, brought them back to an understanding of the essential gospel of Christ, and started spiritual revolutions. And that's my prayer. My prayer is this morning, as we begin this journey through the book of Romans, over the next 10 months, that God will start a revolution in your heart and in your life. A revolution that flows out of you and oozes on to the people you are sitting next to. And then as it oozes on to them, it will ooze out these doors and it will begin to transform our community and our country and our world. You see, that's how revivals start. Revivals start when one person says, I'm tired of the status quo I'm tired of things as they are I'm ready for God to do something new something fresh something more in my life and I believe with all my heart God is ready to do that at Northside I want you to understand Northside has an incredible past from our earliest beginnings God has used us and we have seen great men and women leading our church and we've seen people answer the call to the mission field and to pastor churches and, and serve in other types of, of ministry related fields and, and we're so thankful for what our church has done to reach our community and, and our nation and our world but, but God wants to do so much more in us and through us and, and I believe maybe just maybe God wants us to go through this book because he wants us to use going through this book to change us and make us into the people he wants us to be. And, and so let's begin. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the first 17 verses of Romans. And, and really, 
the first 17 verses are, are, are really explained in the first verse. So I want to read this first verse to you. Romans 1, verse 1. It says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Put that in the back of your mind. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle. That, that word apostle, circle that word, and sent out to preach his good news. Circle that phrase, his good news. You see, in that verse, we see three things about Paul that really are, are found in these first 17 verses. We see Paul's master. Paul was a slave of Jesus Christ. We see Paul's mission. He was called by God to be an apostle. And we see Paul's message. He was called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's unpack these three things about Paul. First of all, Paul's master. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now here's what you need to understand about Paul. Paul was not raised in a Christian home. How many of you were raised with Christian parents? If you're raised with Christian parents, raise your hand. So most of us in here, a lot of us in here, raised with Christian parents. And so if you were raised with Christian parents, you are blessed. You should feel honored. You are fortunate. Most people in America today are not raised with Christian parents. They're not raised in a family that's going to teach them and encourage them to love Jesus. Paul was not raised in a Christian home. He was raised with a Jewish mother. He was raised in a city of Tarsus. Tarsus was a great university city, and he went to the university there. But then he went to study Judaism under the great rabbi Gamaliel. Now, you need to understand, you didn't choose to study under Gamaliel. Gamaliel chose you to study under him. And so Paul must have been an incredible student. And so he was chosen by Gamaliel to study Judaism from this great teacher. Paul most likely could quote the Old Testament from memory. Think about that. The Old Testament. That's a big, big bunch of things to memorize. And he probably could quote it word for word from beginning to end. He was faithful to the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. The Bible says that Paul was described as a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, someone who was righteous for the law. If there was ever a man who was religious, it was Paul. But Paul also hated Jesus. He hated Christians. Do you know why? because he saw Jesus and Christianity as a threat to his religion. He saw it as a threat to Judaism. And so Paul went on a mission to do everything he could to destroy Christianity. The Bible tells us that he was a persecutor of the church. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, we are told that he was at the stoning of Stephen. When Stephen was stoned to death, Paul was there. And then he was chosen by the Jews to head up this, this roundup and arrest and persecution of the Christians. So this was Paul. Paul was on the road to Damascus one day to arrest Christians when something he never expected happened. He met Jesus. The resurrected Lord revealed himself to Paul. And when he did, Paul's life was dramatically changed. He was saved, and he became a slave 
of Jesus Christ. I want you to look at me. That's one of the best descriptions of a Christian that can be found in God's Word. A Christian is a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't like to consider ourselves a slave of anybody and anyone because when we think about slavery, it has a negative tone. When we think about slavery, we look back at the past and we look back at human history, American history, and we see these terrible things. But Paul grew up in a day of slavery. There were over 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 60 million slaves. But Paul wasn't one of them. Paul was born a free man. In Paul's day, you could buy your freedom, but Paul didn't buy his freedom. Paul was born into a family who already were citizens of the Roman Empire. He was a free man. He would not consider himself a slave of anyone. And yet, when he met Jesus, he called himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, we need to understand that that you can be a slave involuntarily like most people would be or you could be a slave like Paul who voluntarily chose a master now when Paul said I'm a slave of Jesus most people would hear that and they would think how could anyone choose to be a slave and yet here was Paul Paul said I am a slave of Jesus Christ Bob Dylan the great theologian of the 1980s he said it this way, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He got it right. Everybody is a slave to somebody or something. Later on in the book of Romans, Paul said this in chapter 6. He said, don't you realize that you become a slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can be a slave of righteousness, which leads to life. You can choose to be a slave to sin, or you can choose to be a slave to righteousness. It's your choice, but you're going to be a slave to someone or something. Jesus said this. He said, no man can serve two masters. And that's what some of you are trying to do this morning. You call yourself a Christian. You say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And yet you have one foot in the world and you have one foot in the kingdom. And you think you can live that way and yet Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You either love the one and despise the other, you'll hate the one or cling to the other, but you can't serve two masters. No one can. And so if you're here today and you say you're a follower of Jesus and yet you're still holding on to the sins of this world, you're deceiving yourself. Because Jesus said a slave can only have one master. So Paul said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means two things. First of all, Paul was saying that his ownership was now Jesus. He was not his own. He was bought with a price. And that's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 19 and 20, Paul said, you do not belong to yourself. God bought you with a high price, and that price was the blood of his son, Jesus. Jesus paid for your sins. You were bought with a price. You belong to God. If you are a Christian, you have no rights. Look at me. Look at me. 
You have no rights. You belong to God. What God says do, you do. If you say, I'm my own man, I can do my own thing, you haven't understood what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Being a slave implies ownership. Secondly, being a slave implies obedience. Slaves obeyed. Some slaves obeyed because they were forced to. They were beaten, and they had to obey. Other slaves obeyed because they wanted to. They loved their masters. As Christians, we don't obey God because we have to. If you're trying to follow God because you're afraid of being punished, you haven't understood the gospel. We don't obey because we have to. We don't obey because we're afraid of being punished. We obey because we love our Father. And we want to live for Him. So being a slave implies ownership. I belong to Christ. Being a slave implies obedience. I'm not my own. I'm going to do what He wants me to do. I have no rights. And for Paul... That meant that he was arrested. That meant that he was beaten with rods. That meant he was beaten with whips. That meant that he went without food. He went without water. He ultimately was put to death. Why? Because he was following Jesus. He was a slave of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about what he wanted. It wasn't about his safety. It was about his master's will. Whatever his master said to do, he did. So what about you? We sing that old song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way. And we like the first part, trust. I'm going to trust him, I'm going to trust him, but you got to hold on to the second phrase, obey, obey. you got to obey him. So if, if God tells you to pack up what you've got and move to Saudi Arabia, which is the, one of the most closed countries in the world, a country where if you're caught telling anybody about Jesus, you're going to be either kicked out of the country, put in prison, or put to death, one or the other. But God tells you to go to Saudi Arabia and help tell people about Jesus there. Are you going to do it, or are you going to go, oh, God, I love you, but... Slaves don't say, God, I love you, but... They go, yes, Lord. You hear me? You connecting with me? Paul was a slave of Jesus. So what about you? Are you a slave of Jesus? Who's your master? Who are you following? Who are you obeying? Who is the owner of your life? Is it you? Is it your spouse? Is it your children? Is it your job? Is it your career? Or is it God? Is your desire to serve Him more than anything else in the world? Is your desire to put safety aside if He calls you to do something? Is your desire to, to sell everything you've got and follow Him if He calls you to do that? Are, are you willing to do that? If you're not, you can't say that He's your master. Paul's master. Second thing we see here is Paul's mission. Paul tells us he was chosen to be an apostle. Now, the order of those two phrases are very important here. You cannot be called to be an apostle until you become a slave of Christ. Did you hear that? You can never be called into service until you become a slave. You can't be sent out until you are slave. Paul says, I have a mission since I've been saved. Since I've become a slave of Jesus, I am called to be an apostle. Now, throughout the Bible, we see there are two great calls. The first one is the call of salvation. Paul talks about that later on in Romans. He says, 
having chosen you, he called you to come to him. Having called you, he gave you right standing with himself. So God calls us to salvation. I remember distinctly when God called me to salvation and I responded. It was when I was nine years old. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting in church and God's Holy Spirit touched my heart and my mind. I knew that I was lost. I knew that I needed a Savior. I didn't understand everything about Jesus. I didn't understand everything about the gospel. I didn't understand everything about the Bible. I just knew I was lost and I needed Jesus. He was my only hope. And that morning I asked him to forgive my sins. I gave him my life, everything I knew about my life. And he saved me. I heard the call of God and I responded. Now, some people say the call of God is irrevocable, and they say that what that means is when God calls, you have to respond. There are people that love Jesus, that are much smarter than I am, that, that hold to that. I don't believe that. I believe that the call of God can be rejected. I think you can reject the call of God. I think God can call you and say, I love you, I want to save you, and you can say, no, I don't want your gift. In Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon said this. He said, I called you so often. This is God speaking. I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. I, I'm convinced that there are going to be some of you here this morning that you're going to walk out of here, and you're going to walk out of here knowing who Jesus is. You're going to walk out of here knowing that God has spoken to you, but you're going to walk out of here without responding to him. You've rejected you may have said, I've rejected for now, later on I'm going to do it, but you've rejected. And that's a dangerous thing. I'm here to tell you right now, whatever your theology may be, if God's speaking to your heart, it is a dangerous thing to reject the call of God. If you're here today and you know you need Jesus, respond to his call because the only way you know you need Jesus is because his spirit is letting you know that. So respond to him, accept him, receive him, and experience the life he wants you to experience. But once we respond to salvation, we're called to serve. We're called to be an apostle. That's what the word apostle means. It means sent out ones. We're called to be sent out to serve, to share, to be God's missionaries. And every single one of us are called to be an apostle. Now, biblically, the word apostle means two things. One, it's used to describe those 13 people, the 12 disciples, the 11 who initially followed Jesus, Judas betrayed him, and then they chose Matthias to follow. So those 12 and then Paul. Paul was an apostle called at an undue time. So those 13 were apostles. Apostles were those who had seen the resurrected Lord. They had experienced experienced him they had they had they they saw him after he died so there's the apostle biblically that gave testimony to what they saw but then biblically the word apostle also is used to describe each and every one of us who are called to go out into the world and share the good news of Jesus if you're a Christ follower you're an apostle if you're a Christ follower you've been sent out into your world to share the hope of Jesus now let's read the rest of this, this chapter, verses 5 through 16, um, that talks about um, Paul's mission. 
Um, in verse 5 it says, Through Christ God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them. So notice what it says there. We have the privilege of being apostles, but as apostles we also are going out with authority. So I want you to know, listen to me, we need to consider it a privilege to be able to tell people about Jesus. It's a privilege, isn't it, to tell people about our master. But as we share Jesus, we need to understand that we're going out with his authority. Wow. When an ambassador goes out into a foreign country representing the president, the king, the country, they are going out with the authority of that president, that king, that a country. We are going out as apostles with God's authority in the world. So we don't need to be afraid when we share the good news of Christ. We have God's authority. Then it goes on to say, so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. The reason that we are sent out is so that people will believe, people will obey, and when people believe and obey, that will bring glory to God. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of you in Rome who are loved by God and are called to be his own holy people. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Let me say first that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. Don't you want that to be said of Northside? Oh, goodness gracious. Don't you want people all over the world to say thank you, Northside, for being faithful to the call because we've heard the gospel, because you've been faithful to send people out, to give, to go, and now we know the Savior. We know the Lord. And so your faith has been talked about all over the world. God knows how often I pray for you. Day and night I bring you and your needs in prayer to God, whom I serve with all my heart by spreading the good news about his son. Paul's task was to spread the good news about Jesus. One of the things I always pray for is the opportunity, God willing, to come at last to see you, for I long to visit you so I can bring you some spiritual gift that will help you grow strong in the Lord. Paul's desire is that they will mature in their faith. When we get together, I want to encourage you in your faith, but I also want you to be encouraged by yours. We mutually encourage one another. I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to visit you, but I was prevented until now. I want to work among you and see spiritual fruit just as I've seen among other Gentiles, for I have a great sense of obligation. I want you to, to chew on that word obligation to people in both the civilized world and the rest of the world, to the educated and the uneducated alike, so I'm eager I want you to hold on to that word eager. I am eager to come to you in Rome too to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed. I want you to hold on to that phrase. I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work saving everyone who believes. The Jew first and then the Gentile. Now notice those words, obligation. You have an obligation to tell people about Jesus. Do you hear me? You have an obligation you have a responsibility. If you are not telling people about Jesus, you're not fulfilling your obligation. So let me ask you a question. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to answer. But how many people have you told about Jesus this week? I'm not talking about sitting in your Bible study, your life group, and 
telling people in a captive audience, oh, let me tell you what Jesus did. No, I'm talking about out there in the workplace, out there in the world. How many people at Walmart? How many people at the doctor's office? How many people at the hospital? How many people in your neighborhood have you intentionally talked to about Jesus this week? We have an obligation to share Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, you are obligated to share with the world what you know about Jesus. And then think about that word eager. Paul said, I am eager to come and preach the good news to you. Paul wasn't just saying that he was willing. Paul was saying, I'm eager. This is what I live for. This is what I breathe for. This is what I want more than anything else in life. I am ready and willing and able. My engine is revved, and I want to come to you so that you can hear the good news just like I've shared in other places around the world. Are you eager to share Jesus? I mean, do you get up in the morning and, and say, God, open up doors for me today to share Jesus? Maybe with someone who's working at my home. Maybe with someone who serves me as I go through life. Maybe it's someone who is in a cubicle beside me. Maybe it's someone at school with me. But Lord, I am eager. Open up the door today and help me be brave enough to walk through. And then he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now here's what most of us think. Most of us think that the opposite of not ashamed is embarrassed. And so we say, well, I'm not embarrassed about Jesus. I mean, if somebody asks me about Jesus, I'll tell them about Jesus. If someone ever comes up to me and says, either deny Jesus or die, I'm going to say, okay, kill me. But that's not what I'm not ashamed of means. The opposite of not ashamed is, is apathetic. If, if, if I'm ashamed of the gospel, what this is saying is I'm just... I'm apathetic about it. Maybe I'll share, maybe I won't. If the opportunity arises, I'll share. But, but that's not what this is saying. What Paul is saying is, I'm not ashamed. Every opportunity I have, I'm going to share. I am eager, I'm willing, I'm able, and I will share because the gospel is what? It is God's only power that saves. It's the gospel that is the power of God that saves. Your moral life won't save a soul. Your treating people kindly won't ever change a human heart. But the gospel can. You can make someone a follower of moral ideas by living a moral life. The only way someone will become a follower of Jesus is by telling them the story of Jesus. Paul's master, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Paul's mission, I'm apostle. I've been sent out to preach the good news. And that brings us to Paul's message. Notice what he says at the end of verse 1, sent out to preach the good news. Now listen to what it says in verses 2 through 4. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son Jesus. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family and was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in verse 17, it says, This good news 
tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith, as the scriptures say. It is through faith that a righteous person has life. Paul's message was the gospel, the good news. That word good news is found seven times in these 17 verses. Seven times. The word gospel, euangelion, that's what it means, good news. The gospel is the good news about the redemptive story of Jesus. Paul described the gospel, the good news, this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. He was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to Scripture. That's the good news. Jesus came to this earth. He died on a cross, but he didn't stay dead. He defeated sin and death by being resurrected from the grave, and that is the only way that we have hope. And Paul discovered that. And I believe with all my heart, when we have an encounter, an encounter with Jesus, we will discover that. That the only hope of the world is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. That means we're sinners. He was buried, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, defeating sin and defeating death. That's the good news that we share. And notice what he said in verse 2. This good news wasn't new news. You see, the gospel didn't originate in the New Testament. The gospel originated in the first book of the Old Testament. The gospel was promised, Paul said in verse 2, throughout the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the gospel is presented in every book of the Old Testament. The first promise of the gospel is in Genesis 3, when man sinned and God said, from the seed of woman, I'm going to provide someone who will crush the head of the serpent, Satan. That was the promise of the gospel. The gospel was promised to Abraham. Abraham was promised that, that God would bless him and he would be a blessing to the world. And that promise was given in every single book of the Old Testament. A deliverer is coming. Someone is coming who is going to right every wrong and make everything new. And that someone is and listen, if we are a follower of Jesus, it is our mission, responsibility, obligation, privilege to share that gospel, that good news with the world. And as we walk through the book of Romans, we see a road that leads to salvation. Somebody years ago coined that road, the Roman road. And we see that throughout the book of Romans. Romans 3, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, that means you, that means me. We've all sinned, we've disobeyed God, we've rebelled against God, we have fallen short of God's standard. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Because we're sinners, rebels against God, we deserve death, eternal death, not just physical death. But the good news is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God has displayed his love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, 
reprobates, rebels against God, Christ died for us. God didn't say straighten up your life, do right, live the way I tell you to, and maybe, just maybe, I'll let you into heaven. No, the Bible says God showed his love toward us while we were still his enemies. He sent his son to die for us. So what do we have to do? Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that word Lord means master. I am confessing Jesus is now my master. And I believe with my heart, not my head, my heart, that God raised him from the dead, I'll be saved. Why do we believe with the heart? We believe with the heart because we can believe something intellectually with our mind and it not change the way we live. But when something hits our heart, the center of who we are, the center of our emotions, the center of our will, man, it changes things. We believe with our heart. And when we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart, we will be saved. We transform. We'll be made new. And just like Paul, we'll become apostles who have been given the message of reconciliation, the gospel, share with the world. So where are you? Have you been saved? I mean, really saved. I'm not, I'm not saying, have you prayed some little baby prayer? I'm not saying, have you been dunked in a pool of water? I'm asking, have you been saved? Has your heart been changed? Have you been made new? Can you say without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is living in me and I'm different? If you can't, oh please, please. Don't leave here today without giving your heart to Jesus. You may be able to walk out these doors and have another chance. You may not. I don't know. You may walk out of these doors today and never want to come back. And so if you're here and you know you need Jesus, oh, please, give your life to him. But second, if you're a follower of Jesus, take it seriously. He's called you to be an apostle sent outside these doors into this world. It may be to Carolina. It, it may be to a doctor's office. It may be somewhere else. But you've been sent out at this stage of your life to share Jesus. At another stage of your life, he may send you overseas. He may send you up into the Northeast. I don't know. But right now, and if you're a follower of Jesus, he's sending you outside these doors this week to tell somebody about Jesus. So take it seriously. And so if you haven't given your life to Jesus, don't leave it without doing that. If you have, take seriously our call to be sent out share the gospel. Now I want you to bow your head. Close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, if you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, but you know you know you need to do that, then I want to encourage you right now in humility to pray this prayer to him. Dear God, I come to you humbly this morning, admitting that I'm a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've rebelled against you. In pride, I've lived life my way.
I'm sorry. I don't want to live this way anymore. Jesus, I know you came to this earth. I know you died on the cross to pay for my sin. I know that you defeated sin and death by being resurrected. And today, I'm confessing you as my Lord. I'm giving you my life. You are my master. I'm going to serve you. I invite you into my heart to take over every part of my life. I'm yours. I love you, Jesus. And I want to serve you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for changing me.